0: Welcome to Small World, Big Problems, a podcast of the Phil Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. My name is Dan DeToro, and today my guest is Professor John McLaughlin. Professor McLaughlin is distinguished practitioner and resident here at the Merrill Center and the faculty advisor for this podcast. Professor McLaughlin spent three decades at the CIA, was Deputy Director of Central Intelligence from 2000 to 2004, before becoming Acting Director of Central Intelligence from July to September of 2004. A SAIS graduate, he returned here to teach and currently writes for The Cypher Brief and other publications. Today, we'll be discussing the war in Ukraine, nuclear weapons, and the future of intelligence. Welcome, Professor McLaughlin. Oh, thanks, Dan. Good to be with you. So recently, you wrote a piece for The Cypher Brief analyzing the impact of the Wagner Group's mutiny in late June can you tell us what you see as the short-term and long-term impacts of the mutiny and how will impact the conduct of the war in Ukraine?
1: Sure. I think when we look back at this episode, people will see it as a turning point in the war. You know, I've long argued that this war from the beginning held the seeds of trouble for Putin, Uh, for Ukraine, obviously, but for Putin politically in the sense that it was such a foolish miscalculation. And I think what Prigozhin did uh, exposes. Putin to political danger at at least three levels, at the societal level, uh, at the level of the elites, and frankly, in the war itself. At the societal level, what Prigozhin did was to say out loud what I'm sure many people in Russia are thinking. Uh, But when an influential person says something that others are thinking in an authoritarian society, it kind of gives permission to others to say and think the same thing. And essentially what he said, the most important thing he said was that in addition to what he charged as corruption among the politicians and military, the most important thing he said was that the war's rationale itself, uh, that NATO was somehow threatening uh, Russia, that the Ukrainians were threatening Russia, he said that that was all false. And and that is a, a very um, uh, powerful thing to say in an authoritarian society, and it it releases what uh, I've come to call, with regard to authoritarian societies, a virus of truth. In other words, he spoke the truth, and uh, it gives some permission to others to, to react to that, to talk about it in ways that they would previously have been hesitant to do because of threats of imprisonment and so forth, <laughs> including the fact now that Prigozhin seems to have gotten away with this so far. You know, among the elites, a second level, I think what we have seen for some time is uh, reporting about questions on the elite level, the circle of people who are close to Putin, who float at the top of Russian society, who are very wealthy, who benefit from his system. Uh, uh, doubts developing among them about whether this is all going to work out to their advantage, to his advantage, and to Russia's advantage. And Prigozhin's effort here, I think, <clears throat> underscored that in ways that uh, no one has done until now. And it creates what um, I've heard described as a kind of prisoner's dilemma among the elite of Russia, by which I mean, and here I'm, I'm quoting Uh, the Russian analyst from Bellingcat, who spoke at a recent meeting of the Aspen Security Forum that I attended a week or so ago, he he made this reference to a prisoner's dilemma among the elite, meaning that many of them feel this is a bad thing, but um, they can't decide, or or no one quite wants to be the first to say so, to speak up. And, And essentially, that's what Prigozhin did. And had he Not turned around when he was 120 miles from Moscow. I think it would have probably drawn adherence to his cause from others in the elite. In any event, the military seemed not to have opposed his march up the road from Ukraine or seemed not to have opposed his takeover of the military headquarters at Rostov on Don. So this had to be a concern for Putin. And then in the war itself, a third level, I think inevitably. Seeing uh, turbulence and disagreement at the top, uh, if you're a soldier, uh, this makes you question the whole rationale for why you should be risking your life uh, in, a, in a war in Ukraine that already, according to what we've heard from POWs and what we hear in uh, radio chatter that has been interrupt- uh, in- intercepted among the uh, Russian forces, Uh, Already, we know that there is a dissatisfaction and a cynicism about the war. So, in terms of the war itself, I think it erodes further what is a critical factor in fighting a war, and that's the will to fight on the Russian side. Whereas we know the will to fight is still very strong and vibrant on the Ukrainian side. So, this is not to say the war is going to be over soon. It's not to say that Putin's going to fall tomorrow, but it certainly is to say that. This episode dealt a blow to Putin's reputation uh, and to his political authority uh, in Russia and ultimately to his ability to prosecute this war successfully.
0: So just expanding on uh, the ramifications for Putin, in April of last year, you wrote a piece and you said that for the first time of over 20 years of following Putin, you doubted his ability to survive politically. So when you were watching this unfold, (laughs) How serious a threat did you perceive it to be? And then what are some scenarios for Putin's future and what probabilities would you assign to them?
1: Yeah, I think um, when I said that back in uh, April of um, 2023, I guess it was, uh, or 2022, uh, it was not a widely... um, endorsed point of view. But I think increasingly people are seeing that this is a political danger to Putin. Now, how it all plays out, you know, (laughs) dangerous to predict, because uh, in modern Russia, we, we don't have models for how governments change that are very well established. Now, back in the Soviet days, we knew, you know, if a Soviet leader screwed up, politically, as Khrushchev did, uh, the Politburo would uh, come together and dismiss him. Or if a leader was ill, and as in the case of uh, Brezhnev or Chernyenko or Andropov, uh, the Politburo would again remove him and replace someone in a process that wasn't very transparent. In Russia, the only changes we've seen since uh, Yeltsin resigned as president in 1999 is, uh, you know, a series of uh, decreasingly fair elections in which Putin has retained power or his uh, associate Medvedev, who was kind of a puppet during his time in government. So we don't have real well-established models. So I think what we could see happen here, if I had to pick a scenario that makes some sense to me in this Russia, would be that at some point, some combination of powerful people whose support is essential to him maintaining his regime. And these would be people drawn from some combination of the security services, meaning intelligence and military, and perhaps some in the business elite, uh, come together and simply say to him, your time is up, best to retire while you still can and, and live comfortably, protect your family and enjoy your wealth and Russia needs to move on. Now, I I can't predict that will happen because of the hesitancy of anyone to make a move, as I say, the prisoner's dilemma and the general sycophancy of the people around Putin. But that is, to me, at least a conceivable possibility. Uh, Or he could decide himself uh, that it's just not going to work out and that he'd better resign and save what he can. i can't see that happening very that's not very likely because putin is determined i think to hang on um so th- th- those are possibilities i mean the, the other possibility that i've heard russians describe is that he hangs on most russians can't envision the possibility of putin leaving because he's been in power most of you know 22 years or so and m- many russians have grown up knowing only putin Um uh, Often you hear the scenario that he hangs on to power, but is a very enfeebled leader who can't really take Russia back to the level of influence it once had. Russia remains under sanction. Uh, It's a weak and dispirited nation, uh, which is the tragedy of what he's done. He's thrown away much of the progress that he made internationally and domestically over the last uh, 20-some years but that he hangs on in that capacity and just uh, ultimately uh, kind of fades away politically. None of these scenarios are very satisfying and hard to visualize, but um, essentially all I'm saying is that the situation he now finds him in is, is, doesn't strike me as sustainable over the long term. Uh, this is not the Russian Russia that those who support him Uh, want to live in, or see advantage in. So it seems to me at some point, something here has to break.
0: So in in that same article where you thought through uh, Putin's future, you talked about some other long-term ramifications. And you wrote that Sweden and Finland would uh, move closer to NATO. And since then, it proved very prescient. They both joined NATO. And at the time, Putin said that this was acceptable to him. But this theme of NATO expansion and Russia's security concerns are very much at the heart of this conflict. So with this enlarged NATO, how does this impact the longer-term security situation in Europe?
1: Well, a a lot of things have changed since this war began. Um, That's why it is, in many respects, a tectonic shift. Uh, Much of the energy uh, in Europe has migrated, I think, to the east. If you look back at the Europe that uh, I uh, paid attention to over the last uh, decades, the Franco-German axis was what essentially drove Europe. Uh, that's still an important relationship. France and Germany still important and so forth. But uh, so much of the uh, focus now is in the East, in countries like the Baltic countries, uh, and, and of course, Poland, the Czech Republic. Uh, and so forth. And uh, much of the military power is now resident there. Uh, The strategic thinking is most advanced there. And whether Ukraine comes into NATO or not, and eventually it probably will, uh, what we have in Ukraine as a Central European country is now The country in Europe most experienced in war, probably best armed, and inevitably uh, influential in whatever Europe emerges from this conflict over time. Uh, In in Europe, I think the war, too, has altered the concept of threat in fundamental ways. If you went back, again, decades, uh, typically it's only the eastern countries that have felt themselves to be frontline states. But now I think uh, most countries in Europe, uh, West and South, understand that the threat to the continent is real and that they're all tied together one way or another through the European Union or through NATO. And so there is a, a much more commonly understood sense of threat now in Europe than there was before this war, when people could really not quite visualize the kind of aggression that countries like Poland and the Baltics could rather easily imagine coming from Russia. But but if you were in the Benelux countries or in Italy or Spain or France uh, or even Germany, it was a little hard to get your head around the idea that Russia might actually invade another country in a way that is in its imagery and tactics reminiscent of the world wars. In fact, one of the things that struck me recently is looking at the tactical situation and the way this war has sort of frozen around. Uh, let's not say it's frozen yet. Let's just say it's it's in, in some kind of limbo now around trench warfare. Uh, it is at the beginning was reminiscent of World War II and at this point is in its imagery and conduct feeling more and more like World War One, with the necessity on the Ukrainian side to basically engage in attacks on trenches across uh, terrible minefields. And so um, all of that I think has changed Europe uh, as far into the future as we can see in terms of its concept of threat, and the way it organizes its defenses.
0: I think uh, you can see that as well with Europe's attitude towards China, because this Russia-China axis um, is was also at the heart of your article. And you, you said that China could take one of two paths. It could exploit a weaker Russia, or it could cut relations to bare bones. And I think it's fair to say we haven't seen the latter scenario. And while China hasn't They've proposed a peace plan. They haven't, as far as we know, provided lethal aid to the Russians. Um, U.S.-China, Europe-China ties have soured. Um, So how do you interpret the current China-Russia relationship and and how do you see it changing in the future?
1: Well, that's a great question. And this is one of the most interesting and complicated aspects of this uh, war. You know, Russia and China... Russia and China say that they are, you know, close partners forever. But in China, what's happened here, I believe, is that Russia has become very much the junior partner. What Russia gets out of this primarily is uh, diplomatic backing, uh, endorsement of some of its propaganda and uh, an outlet for its oil. What China gets out of it is basically oil from Russia, and um, and is able. I think I, I can't see this in any way other than that Russia is able to, or China is able to exploit Russia in this situation. And I think the Russians would make a mistake to assume that they are not being used by China, and that over time they would make a mistake to assume that China will remain. Closely allied with them, that is not the history of Sino-Russian relations. And the Chinese are very good at using uh, those around them in whatever way they can to their advantage, uh, without becoming and there's th- without becoming ideologically or close to them in some way. So uh, the the other the other aspect of this that's interesting to me is that when. Russia talks about when it rattles nuclear weapons, um, many people don't realize that if they were actually to use a nuclear weapon of any sort, tactical or otherwise, they would almost certainly be sacrificing any support from China, which has a a firm no-first-use policy with nuclear weapons and would have to condemn what the Russians are doing. So in a sense, the Russian need for China puts a bit of a break on their um nuclear options can this be sustained over time i i think it's no one can know at this point but at some point here if the war continues to go badly if the ukrainians begin to score uh, a breakthrough of some sort um uh, russia risks i think losing china because you know You mentioned Europe and China. The the Europe market is extraordinarily important to China, and the Chinese trade is extraordinarily important to Europe. The figures are not at my fingertips here, but they are very high in terms of the ranking of China and Europe in terms of their trade relationships. So uh, China is walking a very fine line here with all of Europe essentially against the war, and yet relying on trade with Europe as an important component of its economy at a time when Chinese growth is at an historic low. Uh, The Chinese economy is in some trouble because of a a giant uh, loan bubble that that can burst at any time, uh, excessive reliance on state corporations, uh, the effects of the pandemic, and so forth, which is one of the reasons why the Chinese now are at least on the economic side, opening up to dialogue with the United States, if not on the military side. So China's walking many fine lines here. And I, I guess I would, the bottom line after all of that that I've just said would be to say that I think at this point in the war, the China-Russia relationship is somewhat more volatile than it was at the very beginning before anyone understood exactly where all of this was going. And if I were... Putin, I would not count on Russia, on China being at its side um, in all contingencies.
0: You, you mentioned the the nuclear issue, and we've seen press reports that China has allegedly restrained Russia. We've seen volatility in the nuclear rhetoric from Putin and Russia, and the United States have suspended a New Start, which was the last remaining arms control treaty between the United States and Russia. So. What does this mean for the probability of the conflict uh, going nuclear? And what does it mean for the future of arms control? Well, I
1: I think with the idea of the conflict going nuclear, uh, the best I can say is that the the chances are not zero that that it will go nuclear. But I think the chances are very low that nuclear weapons will come directly into the conflict. However, just talking about nuclear weapons and... uh, Forcing everyone to contemplate the possibility of nuclear use has begun, thankfully, to elevate uh, in international discourse the importance of arms control. Uh, No great breakthroughs at this point, but I think um, people had begun to lose uh, the bubble, so to speak, on arms control, that is, taking nuclear weapons uh, for granted up to a point. People, meaning the vast majority of, you know, strategic thinkers and uh, government officials. Now, I think uh, we have to think about how do we uh, renew a push for arms control at a time when China is uh, increasing its nuclear force to something that, over the next ten years, will be roughly equivalent or approach parity with the nuclear forces of the United States and Russia. China, at this point, uh, refuses uh, any participation in arms control talks. So there is the first um, important obstacle that's in the way. And if you had to set a series of priorities for what to do in the arms control area, at this point, one of them would be to find some way to begin interesting China in some discussion of the future of nuclear weapons. Perhaps through their interest in non proliferation of weapons. They did, after all, help uh, in 2015 when the United States was trying to negotiate and ultimately did negotiate a nuclear um, agreement with Iran. China was part of that and was uh, apparently helpful. So I don't think the Chinese want nuclear weapons to proliferate. Now, (laughs) The problem, again, the problem here is that just talking about nuclear weapons uh, simultaneously increases interest in them, but stimulates uh, interest in some countries in having them. So start with Iran. The Iran nuclear agreement fell apart when Trump withdrew in 2018. And in the meantime, the Iranians have begun enriching uranium to the point where it is now not very much of a leap for them to get to highly enriched uranium that could be used for a bomb. So they are at or approaching what we call breakout capability. If that were to come about, and if it were not to be stopped in some way, then it stimulates interest in other parts of that region, perhaps among the Saudis, the UAE, and so forth. Um, for uh, the idea of developing their own nuclear weapons. Again, no firm intelligence or information that would take you there, but it's just something you have to think about. Uh, in the Far East, uh, with the tensions over Taiwan, the you know, U- U.S. so-called nuclear umbrella, rem- extended deterrence, as it's called, becomes all the more important, And a country like Japan, uh, again, no evidence that it is going nuclear in the weapons sense, but certainly has the technical capability to move in that direction, as does South Korea, if it were to choose to do so. So again, it just moves to the front of the international agenda, the whole idea of first limiting nuclear weapons, starting with the dilemma of Russia, China, United States, and then moving on to those aspiring powers or potentially aspiring powers. And the the difficulty of no progress on the Russian US front is that a kind of implicit understanding among non-nuclear countries is they will not aspire to nuclear weapons if Russia and the United States are actively seeking to reduce their stockpiles and when that slows down or stops it removes a lot of the counter-proliferation pressure in other countries and I haven't even mentioned the technological changes that are taking place such as hypersonic weapons that are not covered by any existing agreements so again this is a one of those things that causes prime ministers and leaders around the country to refer to this period as a an inflection point or transition point or turning of the page in the international system.
0: Going back to the origins of this war, they've been debated, and I think they'll continue to be debated. And some prominent public intellectuals in the United States, including John Mearsheimer and Jeffrey Sachs, have accused the United States of causing the war, citing Putin's warnings at the 2008 Munich Security Conference as a prologue to this, what's essentially been a nine-year war. So what do you make of these claims that the US and NATO caused this war in Ukraine?
1: Well, I totally disagree with the claims that the U.S. and NATO caused this war. That said, we do have to get in Putin's head a little bit and understand his point of view. You know, when the decision was made back in the Clinton administration to begin enlarging NATO, uh, beginning with the Baltics, uh, no one was under the illusion that Russia would like this but it was it was one of those difficult choices in international relations where I think that administration chose to uh, to do that and to take the risk of displeasing Russia and tried to mitigate it by establishing a kind of NATO-Russian, uh, for lack of a better term, partnership in which NATO uh, welcomed Russia as an observer and. Uh, tried to give it some transparency into what NATO was thinking and doing. and Now, I think it was a mistake in 2007 at the Bucharest Summit of NATO uh, for the Bush administration to say that Georgia and Ukraine would become NATO members. And that was a debated idea in that administration, and it was advised by uh, many specialists not to make that announcement or to say that at that uh, NATO meeting, but it, it chose to do so anyway. I think it was a mistake in that it, I think, fueled uh, Putin's concern, his belief that somehow the Soviet Union, having dissolved, was in its uh, successor countries, Russia in particular, being um, disadvantaged surrounded, and so forth. So, um, yes, we have to understand that uh, these, these were things that did not uh, please Putin or Russia. And, uh, and there are other complications involved in, in Russia's, in Putin's gradual moving away from a more benign posture toward the West. Now, all that said, I cannot see how that justifies invading Ukraine. Um, In other words, you cannot justify what has subsequently uh, occurred in in Ukraine, an unprovoked invasion, uh, what I think are almost universally regarded now as war crimes in the conduct of that war, Um, uh, unspeakable devastation, and uh, a strategic miscalculation in, in, in which Putin even if he were to somehow prevail militarily, could never really win this war in that Ukrainians will never see Putin or Russia again as a friendly country. So I, I, I'm prepared to acknowledge that, that NATO expansion uh, was not a pleasing thing to Russia, but I'm not prepared to say that it justifies in any sense what Russia has now done in Ukraine. And to say that it is the cause of the war also ignores the fact that these countries that have come into NATO desperately wanted to come into NATO. And why? Because they could imagine precisely what has just happened in Ukraine. In a way, the invasion of Ukraine has justified uh, the, the thinking on that side of the argument back in the Clinton administration and the Bush administration that side of the argument that said, you know, these countries want to come into NATO. um, It is probably the right thing to do, given how desperately they wish to join.
0: Speaking of those Eastern European countries that, you know, had a more eyes wide open approach to Russia, um, as well as the US, you know, I think declassifying intelligence played a big part in uh, rallying the world around Uh, backing Ukraine and opposing Russia. You mentioned Bellingcat earlier, and they've been critical in documenting Russia's atrocities. At CIA, you were responsible for creating the Senior Analytics Service, founding the Sherman Kent School for Intelligence Analysis. You teach a class here at SAIS on the practice of intelligence analysis. So I think it's fair to say you've thought deeply about the process and practice of intelligence analysis. So I'm curious about the role of open source intelligence, what role it's played in this war, and what you see the future of open source for governments, Well, there there will be an open source intelligence agency someday in the future?
1: Well, the emergence of open source intelligence, I think is perhaps the most important strategic development in terms of the intelligence community in recent decades. And it's the result of uh, everything from social media to uh, the availability of commercial imagery from space and um, the emergence of companies that are able to aggregate all of this in a way that mirrors very much what is done in intelligence. I mean, if you look at the results that Bellingcat has produced on things like determining the culpability for Russian poisonings, or if you look at what a group like the New York Times Visual Investigations Unit has done on things like illicit oil deliveries to North Korea, you, you see in the public sector now the ability to aggregate commercially available photography from space, documents, uh, contracted cinematography, uh, commercially available uh, programs that allow you to track shipping throughout the world, and uh, you know a kind of remarkable ingenuity in terms of putting all of this together. So that that was unimaginable, even ten years ago, certainly twenty years ago. And a lot, a lot of it is simply due to the um, universal uh, communications that we have, have today. So th- this is very important in the intelligence world because uh, on the one hand, it represents a kind of burden sharing that can be helpful to intelligence. If you're an intelligence analyst now, uh, the first thing you need to do before you even start to use the classified information is to understand what is publicly available in terms of uh, open intelligence. And then a second task you have is to figure out of that open intelligence, what is believable? What is true? That's a classic intelligence mission. What is true? So that it heightens that mission. And then third, it's a kind of, um, I wouldn't say so much competition as the effect is to narrow the range of things that the intelligence community has to focus its powerful classified collection mechanisms on. And it it narrows them to the most difficult problems, the ones that open source intelligence can't get to. Uh, What are leadership intentions? Uh, What are plans for the deployment of nuclear weapons? What are war plans in different countries? These are harder things for uh, open source intelligence to detect, which is very good at putting together things that it can see or listen to. So the bottom line is, um, this is a bit of a revolution in the intelligence world. And debate is underway now on whether this should be a separate agency, or whether it ought to be uh, something else. I think over time, the pressure for this to be, if not a separate agency, at least a uh, separate activity in the intelligence world that feeds into those who are doing classified work, uh, that that pressure is, uh, I think, there and will be ceaseless until someone figures out how to do it. Uh, frankly, I don't have a view on whether it needs to be a separate agency or whether it needs to be, uh, run out of the office of the director of national intelligence. Um, I, I think these are things that need to be explored and, uh, and considered from many different angles before someone makes a decision. For one thing to establish a whole new agency is always a complicated thing that creates a lot of disruption and confusion over roles and so forth. And the intelligence community already has, with the addition of Space Force, uh, at least 18 agencies, 18 different entities in it. So uh, this is a tough problem. But the bottom line is it's not going to go away. It will remain important, and it will be a combination of competition and helpful burden sharing for the intelligence community.
0: Well, with that, Professor McLaughlin, thank you for coming on the show. If people want to hear more of your thoughts, how can they find you?
1: Well, I'm pretty easily found at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Um, Easily found there. I do write for The Cipher Brief, uh, which is based uh, in the United States and uh, operates out of Washington and one other location. And
0: I write for many other publications. So I'm pretty easily found. For our listeners out there, Small World Big Problems is a student-led production sponsored by the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University's Paul H. Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies located in Washington, D.C. If you'd like to become part of the podcast, suggest a guest for the show, or send us your feedback, please email us at scistrategypodcasts at gmail.com. Small World Big Problems can be found on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back in two weeks with a new host and our next guest. See you all soon.